The views expressed on this show by guests and the hosts on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Today we're joined by Michael Pengue. He's a longtime 9-11 activist. He's also a member of Montreal 9-11 Truth. We're going to be hearing about some of the great work that they've done over the many years that this movement has existed. And it has been a long time. I mean, good God, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of this event that we were all lied to about. So we're going to be learning more about Michael today. Michael, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. No, thanks. A great opportunity. Thanks, Andy. Uh, uh, great, to be, great to be here. So please tell our audience more about you. And a question I ask every new guest, tell us where you were on the day of 9-11 when you heard the news and what woke you up to what really happened on that day. Yeah, sure. Uh, I remember that day very vividly. Um, I got up uh, from bed and probably was maybe, around, maybe 9 o'clock in the morning. I turned on a TV set. And uh, I remember you know, uh, the towers being hit. Uh, that's what I recall. And uh, immediately what came to my mind, uh, I wasn't really well-versed yet on, on politics as, as I became in, in later years. But immediately I thought, oh, a blowback. That's for all what the, the Americans are doing around the world. I guess it's a blowback. Well, now they're paying the price for it. Um, but I really never took the, uh, the inside job thing seriously until about uh, 2003, uh, after meeting uh, uh, a fellow who eventually became a friend of mine, um, who's well read on, on on politics, he's a political consultant and a McGill University uh, uh, law graduate, and then he just opened up a, a can of worms for me in 2003. So, uh, so I went to began really taking more seriously in 2003. Well, that was a tumultuous yeah. year, and it's hard to even uh, say that now because we're in a very tumultuous time right now, but I do remember when uh, the lead-up to the Iraq war was going on and we started to see divisions in that whole exterior that we showed after September 11th, that united front to go fight the entire world to avenge this thing. Some people started questioning the upcoming war why we're going to Iraq when they had nothing to do with September 11th. God bless those people. I praise those people because uh, that was the beginnings of all of it for me. And it took me a little bit longer to wake up, a few more years before I saw what was really going on. But this movement has really built. And it's thanks to a lot of people like you who I understand was in it very early on when the movement was just getting started. For me, I found it amazing that there were so many other people who decided to not only agree with the 9-11 evidence and take it into their minds, but also to do something about it as well. Was it that way for you? I mean, did you have other people around you already, or did you find them as you started to speak out about 9-11? Um, yeah, I started, uh, no, I was really um, all, all alone, and um, and. Uh, what happened was, I, and of course, 
uh, I got a lot of help eventually with, with people all around me who I've lost contact with because really I've, I've been out of the loop with 9-11 activism for now maybe, what, eight years, if, if not more. I just, I just like to let it go. It was, it was really, really draining. And in general, I find my opinion that the 9-11 truth movement eventually uh, uh, died down and the context that I used to be in contact with across Canada and the U.S. then just like like uh, lost contact, you know, so... Um, but uh, going back when I first started, it was in 2000, late 2003, and then my friend Ken, who was well-versed in, in politics and stuff, and uh, he had mentioned that uh, he had bumped into uh, Michael Rupert because I think Michael Rupert was just finishing, I think, uh, a lecture either in Toronto or in Ottawa. And I don't know how Ken, my friend Ken, got to meet him, but I think uh, Michael Rupert, I think, was going to cross through Montreal as he went back to the United States. So they met up and they uh, they had a big discussion and and uh, and so Rupert told my friend Ken some information about 9/11 and so forth and then when I was um, speaking to Ken um, in 2003 going to Toronto for the uh, the convention of the, the then Progressive Conservative Party of Canada and at that time I, I just started getting involved in political activism because we, I was involved with the uh, Progressive Conservatives. Uh, at that time, we had a candidate I was supporting. His name was David Orchard, um, who was critical of uh, free trade and the NAFTA agreements and uh, corporate globalization. And uh, so on the ride to Toronto, my friend Ken, uh, we start chit-chatting, and he mentioned Michael Rupert and so forth. And he goes, ah, Mike, yeah, you, this, it was an inside job. Are you serious? So, uh, so as soon as I got back home uh, there uh, in Montreal, I immediately went to filmthewilderness.com, and I started you know, looking up what Rupert was all talking about, and I immediately bought his uh, his video, uh, 9-11 with Truth and Lies, and I got hooked, uh, hooked right away, and uh, I was really overwhelmed with the information. I didn't know what to do, and, uh, you know, I was anxious like, to do something, but I quite did not know what to do, and then eventually I heard of uh, Batteries Wickers' um one week conference in Toronto. That was, I think, part of the the big conference that went on in New York City. I think in 2000 and so 2003, 2004, New York had a big conference, and the other one was in in Toronto, and then they had another thing in California. So I went to Toronto for for one week. Um, I took a uh, time off work, and that's where I met uh, eventually Michael Rupert, uh, Dr. Michelle Shostakovsky from Global Research. Uh, I heard the uh, Dr. Bob, the late Bob Bowman's um, uh, speech. Um, uh, there was a whole bunch of other people I can't remember. So, and that really inspired me meeting these people. And uh, wow, this is amazing. You know, it's like uh, these are not like you know uh, just regular folks. I mean, some big time people here. And uh, if they think this was an inside job, because uh, I got to take this more seriously, you know. So, so I came back home to Montreal, and uh, and then I was inspired. Um, uh, to do something when I heard of Michael Moore's um, Fahrenheit 9/11 um, uh, film, so I immediately made up some signs um, and uh, made a big sandwich board saying 9/11 was inside job, and I made these hand flyers and I took Michael Moore's like uh, face and I just twisted it around a bit and and uh, and I made these hand handmade flyers and I went in front of uh, two movie theaters here in Montreal for about uh, two weeks. Um, every second day or so, and giving out uh, flyers on um, on, uh, on on what I learned at that time in regards to 9/11. So it was a fun experience. Uh, some people, you know, just like 
ignored me. Uh, some were quite hysterical, aggressive, and um, and uh, I remember one time I met um, a well-known uh, mainstream journalist, a veteran female journalist, and uh, so I was chit-chatting with the uh, with the uh, cinema owner, and uh, and he says to me, uh, "Look, look, there's a." Uh, Madame, uh, like uh, Bombardier, she's a well-known journalist here. Goes, give her the flyer, give her the flyer, and uh, she like turned around and says, "What's this garbage?" You know, she so just like threw it down, and he said to me, "Because uh, oh, he just he just yelled out to her, oh, la bourgeoisie," <laughs> and uh, so, so those are the kind of uh, the the experiences I had. And one was an American that I met, and he says, "You know, I'm an American." And, uh, you know, this is bullshit. And, uh, you know, he just took my flyer and just threw it on the ground. So, well, so I apologize, but, you know, I met Americans. Like, I met Ellen Mariani in Toronto, and she lost her husband in 9-11. And she doesn't believe what the government's telling them, and she wants an investigation. <laughs> you know, so uh, he just looked at me, you know, in a very, uh, you know, aggressive manner. And uh, he didn't want to hear about it, so he just he just, uh, he just walked away, you know. So, um, and... Uh, so that was the. It was not easy. It's like it's, it. It takes an emotional toll. Uh, I find uh, when you're you're in the street at that time, it was very aggressive. You know, it's like, uh, who are you? And I was, I was, uh, you know, I call it uh, tense inside and uh, really emotional. And I lose sometimes sleep because of all the uh, the anxiety about it and what to do next. Uh, gee, I gotta do something, you know, and. And uh, I was always finding something to do. Or where am I going to distribute my flyers tomorrow? And and uh, so I wasn't really getting anywhere until my girlfriend told me, Michael, why don't you like put some money together and do your own conference? So so it took a long time. Eventually, in 2006, I held a, a film presentation uh, here in in Montreal, in downtown Montreal, where I presented the Barry's Workers uh, film. Um, and I wanted to think with a film from Alex Jones, and uh, I also had a little piece in the newspaper from the Alternative Press, the Montreal Mirror, um, and I met maybe two or three fellows from that thing, so we we corresponded. But then the big thing was, I think, in 2007, when eventually I got Webster Tar Tarpley to come to Montreal, and uh, and that's when I made a lot of uh, you know uh, contacts and and friends and. Who then jumped in and uh, helped me out a lot, um, and then it just like steamrolled afterwards. Then I made contact with Professor Shostakovsky, who just lives outside here, uh, the director of global research, and um, so then really things kicked in afterwards. Then Michelle Shostakovsky was a great help. Um, he then I did uh, two, three, four lectures uh, with him, and then of course he co-funded co it. And um, and uh, we had like David Ray Griffin come to speak, uh, Richard Gage twice, David Ray Griffin twice too. We had um, Annie Michon, a former at MI5, uh, come to speak. Um, we had Cynthia McKinney for the 10th anniversary with Wayne Madsen uh, come and speak. Um, so uh, you know, so things took time, but uh, uh, eventually it was 2000. Seven to 2010 and 11, uh, that was really involved a lot uh, with other people. But from 2003 to 2007, I was really just like on my own, just like you know, on the street and doing little things on, on my own, and not really getting any 
uh, any traction with uh, with fellow act- activists. I was the same way in the early days. I was I didn't do a lot of street stuff. I would sometimes on the anniversary, but I would write. I would send it to alternative media, and I didn't get involved with AE until about 2010, I want to say, when they were asking for volunteers for a particular project that they were doing. So I know that feeling. I know exactly what it's like, and to be the only person in your entire circle or your entire geography or geographical region to know about this, be talking about it. I remember the dismissive attitudes. I mean, everybody is now hyper-political for one side or the other these days, but back then nobody really cared. I mean, you had an anti-war movement that was largely pacified when Obama got into office here in the United States, and then there was that whole period where people just giggled at their cell phones and looked at you like you were a funny picture on the wall when you just spoke about this stuff. I find your story about the journalist woman very interesting because if she's a well-known person, famous I imagine she gets handed a lot of stuff. It seems like the easiest way to blow someone off is just say, okay, thank you, I'll look at it, or just say thank you and move on. But she actually took issue with it. She said, what is this garbage? And it's that reaction that really piqued my interest back in the day, the very hostile reactions that people would have when you even even suggested this just a little bit. Now, I understand we all went through the event in one form or another, most of us watching it on television, but you you can see right there how people really just wanted to close the book on this entire thing, shut it right out of their minds. And there's so much information out there that proves we were lied to, especially when it comes to the destruction of the Three Towers in New York on that day. To me, it's an open and shut case. And we've seen some uh, yeah. we've seen some changes in the public. At least I have. I mean, everybody's got a different set of eyes and experiences. But what do you think? Do you think that the public overall has changed to be more receptive, less receptive, or do you think it's the same situation in your view? Um, I think people are maybe are are more open to it. Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't really asked the question to strangers, but um, I think people are are uh, more skeptical. Just like the JFK assassination. Um, I think now it's what it's over. What, what was the last thing I heard in the, in the mainstream press? Or maybe what was it? What sixty percent or so of Americans still think now that there was maybe a, a conspiracy? And I think that because of um, uh, with technology and the internet, uh, you know, whatever it took if it took twenty years for most Americans to wake up to what happened with the JFK assassination, uh, with the internet, I think now we're probably what six, what three, four, five times faster. You know, the, the waking up. Um, uh, what the percentage is like, um, I'm not too sure. But I think also this COVID-19 has maybe waking people up. People maybe were apolitical. Now we're asking questions because now there's no way to run anymore. Well, now we're, we're being masked up. We're being asked uh, you know, to follow curfews. Uh, we're going bankrupt. People are losing their businesses. Well, some people are getting really ultra-rich. So there's no way to hide from politics anymore. Politics now is affecting everybody's personal life. That maybe I think people are maybe beginning to ask questions. Or maybe my so-called friend or colleague who mentioned about 9/11 and the JFK assassination and being an inside job. Maybe there is some truth because what's going on with this COVID business? You know, it's like it's breaking a lot of people's lives. And you know, and. Uh, Doctors are being censored, so you know. So people maybe are, are, are beginning to be more, um, uh, you know, skeptical. I, I, I think because of um, 
the crisis that we're in, we're in right now. Yeah, you know, I predicted it right here on the show, and I can't tell you which episode, but I do remember sitting at this microphone and saying it at some point is that at someday the powers that shouldn't be are going to do something. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be something that would affect the economy or you know, war or whatever, but they're going to step over the line. They're going to do something that affects people at home. They're going to push their luck, and that is when people are going to start waking up to all of this. And remember, just like you said, remember that friend that was talking about 9-11, and it's only going to be helpful to us. So actually, this is the time to step up and speak up. Uh, when you hear people complaining about the world situation and certain issues uh, affecting our country right now, our entire world, our economy, businesses shut down, when you hear them talking about this, when you hear them uh, asking certain questions about what they're being told on narratives, uh, talk about 9-11 as well. Have them revisit that day. And the seeds that you planted years ago may be sprouting as we speak right now. So this is a good time for 9-11 truth, and I think we just have to bite our time, and I think a lot of truths are going to be revealed when they push this stuff too far. Now, yeah. a, a lot of that planting seeds is through the street activism and the great work of many 9-11 truth groups over the years and it was sort of like a scattered confederacy of different groups sometimes working together sometimes independently a lot of times they put out youtube videos uh showing what they were doing either confronting politicians and such or um, you know doing street actions you were part of 9-11 truth montreal as i saw it as the name was on the internet, tell us about that and some of the things you guys did. Yeah, so um, I think a, a one key event that really sticks out, and I think it was a it paid a major impact. Um, I'll say uh, the one in 2010 when we had uh, my first first event um, at a university. Uh, I tried with Vanier College in Montreal, but then. Um, uh, after I think the administration picked up what it was all about, then they canceled the contract. I tried to approach Concordia University. They gave me the runaround, so I couldn't get in with Concordia University, neither McGill. But then eventually I got uh, a response from uh, UCAN, the University of Quebec uh, of Montreal, French-speaking university. And I think the only reason why we got in with UCAM is because um, uh, the person at the administration, the rental office, you know, um, you know, just signed a contract, and then probably the higher ups did not pick up on the story. But then once somehow, it, I think it, it made it into the uh, uh, into the I don't know maybe to the circles in the in the, in the university, the higher ups, and then the media picked up on the story. I don't think the university wanted to look like they're against free speech, so it was too late to cancel the, the contract. So um, and it worked for us because then there was a big scandal in mainstream press. So that press picked it up. I think the Toronto, the Toronto Star, picked up the story. And uh, I was David Ray Griffin and uh, Richard Gage, who was on a speaking tour. I think they spoke in Toronto and Montreal. So uh, so but University uh, here of uh, UCAM, they did say that uh, they'll have to consider uh, their their protocols or their their policies. Um, and when renting their hall again because they can't afford to, not to give room to these uh, conspiracy theorists at a university. You know? <laughs> um, so, but they worked uh, worked for us because uh, I think it was like 700 or 800 capacity the theater, and it was I think like full house where we had sold out. Um, and I think most people though in the attendance were already those who were, were already awake to the issue, so they needed they they, they did not need to be convinced. But uh, it was very, uh, they're successful. Um, you know, uh, we got media attention. 
Um, and uh, I tried to organize another event at the same university the year after for the anniversary in 2011. But, of course, then they didn't want to hear about it. They said, no, no, we're not giving you any access to our university. So then we had to hold the event at a, at a movie theater. And uh, we had um, uh, Cynthia McKinney to come and speak for that one. And it was sponsored also uh, by Michelle Shosudovsky from uh, Global Research, and I also uh, encouraged Michelle to have Wayne Madsen, because I did read some of his work, and I found it quite interesting. So we had Wayne Madsen come to speak too, and I remember being at the door, and uh, I had ripped the ticket of the uh, former police commissioner of Montreal, uh, Jacques Duchesneau. So, oh my God, it's like Jacques Duchesneau is here, the former police commissioner. <laughs> uh, you know, so... Uh, uh, was he just there as a, as a, a curious onlooker or spying on us? I, I don't know, but it was wow, it was really it was really interesting to see a former police commissioner there in attendance. Yeah, so that 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 was uh, that was a big a big one a big one too. Um, um, of course, we also had uh, we did a, a one hour film. Um, it was called uh, what nine eleven. Uh, Montreal, the next nine eleven targets. That was like I think one hour film that. I put together with other fellow activists here in Montreal, uh, and it was in reference to the city of Montreal signing a contract with uh, Verant for the uh, the underground subway system security, video, some video security, and uh, Verant um, was a, a subsidiary of, what was that other company? I can't remember the, 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 um, the parent company, but they were involved in that scandal. Um, if you remember, uh, that's uh, Fox News had covered um, uh, regarding to the, these uh, organized crime figures um, had penetrated within the, uh, the U.S. Um, phone system, and uh, they were also linked, to, um, uh, I think, to the is it the uh, the art students there, these really art students, um, and Verant uh, was a company that was delisted from Nasdaq, and the and uh, the CEO had. Uh, um, I don't know, had robbed uh, their investors to $206 million or something. And then he uh, he just uh, took off and uh, hid himself in somewhere in um, in Africa. And last I heard a few years ago, I think now he's he's no longer there. I think he's he's been released. And um, so, uh, so I like to think that because we blew the whistle on that uh, suspicious security contract, um, uh, that um, we probably maybe uh, you know avoided uh, a bomb attack in, in the Montreal subway system. Um, so that was like a like a, a major thing, and we also went to uh, challenge the Montreal uh, Council on that. Uh, we had it on camera. We went there in person, and we asked some questions to our our, our governments here in Montreal as to what the, why did they give this contract to this suspicious company that was delisted from Nasdaq and. The CEO, you know, uh, you know, was accused of robbing, uh, you know, uh, you know, money from their investors, and then took off in, in, in Desert Africa. So, uh, so that was like a big thing. I think that we we did with that with that video. You never know how what you do impacts the world, and a lot of times, whatever the impact is, unravels away from you. So that is why it's always important to just follow that instinct and do whatever you can because even if you don't see the results of it even if you don't know it for the rest of 
your days, that impact still carries forward and affects what happens. So it very well could have, and I'm sure that all of us have impacted the world in some way for the better regarding our 9-11 activism, even though we didn't even know it. Maybe that brochure you handed to somebody on the street had some impact on public policy. Maybe that person was working for the government, let's say, or working for some congressman's office, and maybe we avoided some horrible legislation because they questioned 9-11 as it was coming up. So that's why we have to just keep on doing whatever it is we are doing and having faith that our efforts are not in vain, that the impact of our work is felt everywhere. Now, why is it important what happened on 9-11 still in 2020? Uh, well, in my, in my opinion, it's because um, if, we don't, if we don't stop them, um, then it will just continue going. And, um, and I think uh, 9-11 false flag terrorism, I think it should be uh, part of required uh, reading in, in, in high school, I think. I think false flag terrorism and stuff, uh, you know, it should be part of uh, what we learn in high school. Uh, how people should be vigilant and how governments could orchestrate terrorism against their own, you know, to subvert democracy and their institutions. Um, you know, uh, when I learned about 9-11, it just maybe a few years later, uh, then I realized, oh, wait a minute, but then what about the JFK assassination? What about Martin Luther King assassination? It was, this is not like a, 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 an event that just uh, just started today, but this is, there's like there's a precedence. So then I started reading about JFK assassination, Martin Luther King, the Oklahoma City bombing. Was, oh my God, World War II, a lot of stuff was that. that but how Wall Street, you know, financed the uh, uh, the, the Nazi regime. So I was, oh my God, this is like this. This goes like like the, the rabbit hole just expanded. So, oh my God. So I think it's 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 uh, required reading. And then when I learned about also about NATO terrorism in uh, in post um, World War II, um, and then that's another thing. But what happened there in Europe? Uh, how uh, terrorism was used to subvert the the, um, the left in Europe. And I remember as a little boy, because um, I'm a first generation Canadian and my parents are are born in Italy, and my grandfather I would always say that. Uh, for, was it uh, President Aldo Moro um, in 1979? Uh, the mainstream media told us that he was assassinated by the Red Brigades, but but he was always saying, no, no, he was not killed by the Red Brigades. Uh, he, this was a CIA um, assassination, you know. And um, so I didn't know what to think about it. But then eventually, when I started exploring 9/11 and false flag terrorism, and then I read uh, Daniel Ganser's book, uh, NATO's Secret Armies. Then I was, oh my God, really convinced that my grandfather was right. That yes, Aldo Moro most likely was assassinated by Italian intelligence uh, in cahoots with uh, British and, and, and American intelligence. And uh, and in my reading of Aldo Moro, it was very similar to JFK assassination. Aldo Moro uh, went to the United States and um, and uh, he was forewarned by uh, Kissinger that uh, he should not allow uh, communists into his cabinet. And Aldo Moro was a Christian Democrat, I found very similar to John F. Kennedy, and he wanted to bring some stability in Italy. So he wanted maybe to make a compromise, somehow bring the communists that went into his cabinet. And uh, Kissinger forewarned him, you, know, you, cannot, you cannot do that. And then um, he went back to Italy, and um, according to the testimony of his wife, he was really distraught after his visit to the United States, and uh, he wanted to, you know, finish his 
political career uh, as soon as possible. Um, but then, unfortunately, he was abducted by these, these red brigades, and for a month he he disappeared. Then was found dead in the um, um, was he found? He found dead? Was it in the in the luggage in the um, in the um, uh, called in the trunk trunk of a car uh, somewhere there in, in Italy? And after reading Daniel Ganza's book and also uh, uh, coming across Webster Tarpley's book, because he speaks also Italian, I think, Webster Tarpley, I was convinced, yeah, exactly, Albemarle was assassinated by, uh, by the intelligence services. So, um, so you know, it's like, so I think that this false flag should be a thing required reading in, in high school. Absolutely. It's a big part of history and it's something that we need to know more about. Well, we are out of time here on this show. Michael, thank you for all of your work that you've done for the cause and any work you do again in the future. And thank you for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Oh, great. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity. And, uh, and I wish all the best to uh, the folks from Mark Architects and Engineers for Now Living Truth. I really appreciate what the work, and it was a great time uh, meeting Richard Gage uh, when we had him here in Montreal twice. This program is on every Thursday night on No Lies Radio at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, and every other Sunday night on BBS Radio at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. You can also keep track of the archives by going to 911freefall.com. This is Andy Steele. Have a great week. Good luck.